Good morning once again. Uh, we, are, we are there. We are at our last sermon of the Deuteronomy series. And in a week we'll start a new series in 1 Peter. And, and though we haven't covered everything in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, we've hit many of the major themes, if not all the major themes. The theme of God making a covenant relationship with us. Uh, his judgment on sin is called to obedience. Uh, the use of the law in our lives. We took a closer look at each of the Ten Commandments. Uh, we looked at the person and work of Christ through the law. Uh, we are looking at all different things, including blessings and cursings. Uh, we looked at that a couple weeks back. And this week, we're going to end where Deuteronomy ends. We're going to focus our attention on future glory. Remember, the people of God are on the cusp of the promised land. And we come to the end of Deuteronomy, and they aren't there yet. Uh, and so we're going to be looking at uh, that, that place of, of moving towards the promised land, looking forward. Uh, so with that, we're going to look at two texts. We're going to look at the end of chapter 33, the last few verses, and then chapter 34. It's printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, it's Deuteronomy 33, 26 to 29, and Deuteronomy 34, 1 to 12. So let's hear God's word. There is none like God, O Jeshurun, who rides through the heavens to help you, through the skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, Destroy. And so Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens dropped down dew. Happy are you, O Israel. Who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph? Your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. Chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all of Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is, the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And, he buried him, and they buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since Israel like Mo- in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all his land. 
for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. The word of the Lord. So much of life uh, is focused on things that are immediately uh, before us. The next step that we have to take, the task at hand, or whatever trial that lays in front of us, uh, they're right there all the time that it's hard for us to get perspective, right? We're so focused and fixated on, on the things right in our immediate purview. Days can feel long and years can feel short. Isn't that right? Uh, that's how I feel. And those long days are exhausting. And we look back and time has passed us by. Maybe this is why many people like to climb up to a promontory or to a lookout or a mountaintop. Because uh, when you go to a spot like that, you get a sense of space and distance. It's like going up to uh, just nearby our house, up Talcott Mountain to the Hubline Tower and to look over the Farmington Valley. Uh, and we start to look out on that valley and we say, oh, look, there's Simsbury, there's Avon, there's uh, all the towns and all the features, the ponds and whatnot that you see. And you start to get perspective. Uh, geographical perspective, maybe, but it also makes us pensive when we climb mountains, doesn't it? When we look across a great expanse, uh, we start to get pensive. Well, in our text this morning, the Lord brings Moses to the top of a mountain to look out across the Jordan to the land of promise. It says that the Lord showed him all the land from north to the east to the west to the south, and you, you can we'll get to that in a minute, but uh, that's kind of the, the, he kind of paints a picture, drawing his eyes from the north all the way down across the land in this grand uh, panoramic of the promised land across the Jordan River. And for Moses, it was a bittersweet moment. On the one hand, it was a place he couldn't go. But on the other hand, it was the home of the people of God. It was those people that he had faithfully led for 40 plus odd years through the wilderness who were now about to enter the promised place of God. He was happy for them. I don't doubt there was a sense of sadness, but he was joyful as he thought about the blessings of God for those people. And though he would die without personally entering the promised land, he also had a hope of glory. As he looked on the promised land, he thought, oh, I can't taste that, but I'm about to taste something far greater. So he had a place that that physical land only gave a picture to. And so he was given perspective. Can imagine Moses looking out across the land, gaining that grand perspective as he thought about future glory. And this morning, my hope is that we too might gain perspective. We're not climbing a mountain together, though that would be fun to do with you all. But we're going to stand here looking forward, looking out at the grand panorama of glory. As we look with spiritual eyes towards that future glory and to the God of the glory, And so get perspective and see life here and now in its right frame. And my hope is that by doing this, you would be encouraged, that I would be encouraged, that we could press on 
with those things that are right before us. Friends, in Christ, you are blessed by God and you are bound for glory. And we'll do this by looking at the text in three sections. The first is you are blessed by a glorious God. The second is for us to fix our eyes on that horizon of hope. That's what I like to call it, this horizon of hope. And then finally, we'll look at a prophet like Moses that enables us to see. So first, you are a blessed, you are blessed, people of God, by a glorious God. We're starting our sermon at the end of chapter 33, but I I think it would be helpful to give some context to these last few verses of chapter 33. Um, It wasn't uncommon that at the end of a patriarch's life or at the end of of the life of a, a figure in Scripture that he would give a benediction or a blessing to his children. We see this in Genesis where where uh, you have Isaac bless his sons, Jacob and Esau, and there's a whole story wrapped around that. And then you have Jacob himself blessing his 12 sons at the very end of the book of Genesis. Uh, Something similar is going on here in chapter 33. We didn't look at it, but Moses blesses, as in some way his spiritual children, all the various tribes of Israel as they're about to enter the promised land. And bookended on each side of this sort of blessing for Reuben and Judah and, and so on, Zebulun, on the, on the bookend of each is a, uh, how do you put it, a picture of the glorious God who blesses. Right? So he blesses, but on either end of that blessing is to say, it is the God of glory. Who blesses, And so I want to look at just the, the bottom section here, uh, this God who blesses, this benediction that comes from him. So what do we notice about this God from whom all blessings flow? The first thing that stands out in verse 26 is that there is none like God. Not one. There's none like God. At the beginning of the chapter, it describes God as the one uh, who was on Sinai. We didn't read this passage, but he comes with fire. It says he came with ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. That was the description at the bookend of the beginning. So we're looking at the bookend at the end, but you get this awesome picture of God at Sinai who came down and descended like a cloud upon the mountain, furious and consuming in some ways. Uh, And here at the end of the chapter, it describes him as the one who rides through the heavens to help through the skies in his majesty. It describes him as the eternal God. He is the God who is strong and mighty, who envelops his people in his strong arms, who protects them and keeps them, and who with those same strong arms destroys his and our enemies. He's a strong God. And he is a God who showers down blessings. On his people, I love this 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 section here when it describes the blessing. Uh, if you look um, here, it says, uh, "The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms." And he goes on. He talks about thrusting out the enemy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine, whose heavens drop down dew. Did you notice the tenses of those verses? of those, of those uh, verbs. They're past. But wait a minute, they aren't there yet. So how is it that, that Moses is talking as if those things are already have happened in the past? 
Scripture will do this sometimes. We'll talk about something that is future that is so certain that the Scripture talks about it as already having been completed. That's how certain the blessings of God are for the people of God. There is none like this God. At the beginning of Deuteronomy, we looked at the Shema. Do you remember the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is no other God. There is none like Him. Do we think of God like this? Do we reflect on the fact that God created all things, rules over all things, is infinite, eternal, and all-wise, that He alone reigns supreme? I think those things are easy to come off our mouth, especially if you've grown up in the church, to say those realities, those truths. I, I, I think it's, it's easy to say. <laughs> really hard for us to grasp hold of, isn't it? Difficult to believe. It's easy to sing and declare these things, but when life presses in on us, they're easy to abandon. Oh God, where are you? Do you still reign? Because I don't, I don't sense it. To declare God is alone God means we are not God. Science is not. Reason is not. Technology is not. Education is not. Entertainment is not. The kings of this earth are not. The people's will is not. I am not. You are not. There is none like God. He alone is the glorious God. But there's a second thing to note. Did you notice this strange name, Jeshurun? Who is that? <laughs> it, it only appears a few places in Scripture. Here in Deuteronomy, actually the beginning in Deuteronomy chapter 33, at the beginning and the end, and in Deuteronomy chapter 32, which we didn't look at, but you can go there, and in Isaiah. That's the only places we see it. One verse in Isaiah and three times, three times in Deuteronomy. Who is this? Is it like the lost tribe of Israel? <laughs> Who is Jeshurun? Well, Jeshurun is a personal, intimate term of endearment for the people of God that God uses. And there's some debate as to its direct meaning, but there's, there's most likely a good translation that, that the root of the word uh, it comes from this, this verb, uh, uprightness or, or righteousness. So one translation is it says, upright ones. And this is a really amazing thing that God, after all the stuff we've seen about curses and, and everything negative about the people of Israel, they're a stiff-necked, stubborn people who rebel against him. He says, my upright ones. My upright ones. They are his. He loves them. Elsewhere in Scripture, he calls his people the apple of his eye. Precious in his sight. And he blesses them. Notice what it says here in verses 26 and following. He rides through the heavens to do what? To help them. He, not the promised land, is their dwelling place, this text says. 
The ultimate thing is not the land itself with all its blessing and all its fruit and all the goodness of it. It's Him. It's God in their midst. He is their dwelling place. And He holds them in His everlasting arms. While with those same everlasting arms, He is strong and He defeats their enemies. They are secure in Him. Notice the interrogative here. Um, It's toward the end. It says, happy are you, O people of Israel, who is like you? Stop right there. That's often the interrogative used of God, right? Who is like you, O Lord, who created the heavens and the earth? Who is like you, who speaks and all things are made? Who is like you? But here it says, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord? See that? There is nothing like it. People saved by the Lord. And so, it says they are happy in the ESV. But the word here, happy, does not convey the full weight of the underlying word. It is the word blessed. Blessed. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the righteous man. Psalm 2 says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Psalm 45 says, blessed, all the same word, is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Psalm 84 says, blessed is the one who dwells in the courts of the Lord and whose strength is in the Lord. Sure. These truths make us happy, but it's a stronger, deeper happy, isn't it? It's a stronger, deeper happy. It's not the kind of happy that we get when we we laugh at a show on TV, but it's a stronger, deeper happy, a happy that even in sorrow and grief and the persistent struggle of this life, that we have a joy that Paul says is inexpressible and filled with glory. In the midst of grief, we can say, we are blessed. We are blessed by the Almighty. And friends, those of you who have yet to taste and see and to know that God is merciful and gracious and that he overflows with these things, he calls you to take refuge in him, to trust in him, to be forgiven by him, to dwell in him, to be blessed by him. In Christ, we are already blessed abundantly by this glorious God. But there is a glory yet to come that far surpasses the current experience of God's blessing now. And I want to turn our attention to what I call this horizon of hope, our horizon of hope. In chapter 34, the very last chapter of Deuteronomy, we come to the end of an era. It is the end of Moses' ministry. No other prophet or leader of Israel gets such attention from Scripture. And, and you know, I wrestled with this, saying that, um, uh, of course, apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, because David is such a prominent figure in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and I would say David comes close, but even then, I don't think he holds the same place in Scripture that Moses holds. Moses himself was miraculously preserved by God as an infant, in order that he might deliver God's people from the oppression of slavery in Egypt. With mighty acts and signs, Moses led the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea 
to Mount Sinai where he alone approaches the, the glory cloud, right? He goes up and meets with that terrifying God, receives the law and the covenant. Moses faithfully mediated that covenant to the people, advocating for them, even amidst their own sin. This is how great Moses was. Moses even got to see the backside of God's glory. Nobody else. Isaiah had a vision of it. But nobody else was up in the cloud like that. So God, in his mercy, brings Moses to the mountain. He was the greatest of all prophets. And yet, and yet, Moses sinned against God. And was not permitted to enter the promised land. So he says to Moses, all right, Moses, come up on to Nebo, Mount Nebo, and go to Pisgah. Pisgah was probably just another word for promontory or outcropping or place to have a view, right? We, we can picture what that's like. Uh, but he gets there and he says, look out from this place. He looked out over the land and God showed him the place where the people would dwell. And each place was designated by the location of the tribal inheritance, right? There was Gilead, the rocky place where Gad would be on the, on the western or eastern side of the river Jordan. And then he said, look all the way up north where Dan's territory will be. And a little south of Dan, you'll find Naphtali's territory. And then go south of that and you have Manasseh and Ephraim. And then a little bit south of that, Judah right there in the heart of the land. But keep going west and south all the way to the desert. Look over here to Jericho and the plains. Look to Zoar down on the way to Egypt. He says, all of it is yours. All of it belongs to your people. To, God says, all of it belongs to the people. And Moses was happy. He didn't get to go. And God was blessing Moses by letting him see that place. And Moses had a little time left to reflect. But you can't help but think how he thought about life. His whole life was spent on this singular aim, to get the people to the land of promise. Everything that he was about, everything that he did, even to the point of willingness to die for this wayward people, when they had committed the most atrocious sin by worshiping a false calf uh, there on, uh, uh, by Mount Sinai, Moses says, I'll make atonement for them. I'll die in their place. Just go with them. Be their God. Go with them to the promised land. He was willing even to die for them. And here he was. He accomplished his purpose. As I said earlier, it must have been a bittersweet moment, right? To look at the land, to know that he would not taste its fruit, he would not enjoy its blessing. But he enjoyed this, that his striving was not in vain. He had brought the people safely through. Notice the epitaph for Moses at the end of the chapter. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The signs and wonders were attributed to him, power and might was attributed to him. Moses had poured himself out to reach the spot even if he himself could not enter in. 
And this begs a huge question. Why, Moses? Why? Why would you do this? Why would you go to all this effort and you don't even get to taste the promised land? Why would you endure the people and all their bickering and grumbling and complaining? Why would you endure Pharaoh? Why all endure all those trials and tribulations and enemies just to see the land? Why? There is a, a current car commercial, car ad uh, for the Ford Ranger. And these ads always get me excited. I don't, they're dumb, but they make me want to buy the car. Um, it, the, the narrator, it opens with this statement. He says, we humans are strange creatures in that kind of voice. It says, all other creatures avoid pain and struggle. We actually seek it out. Other species do difficult things because they have to. We do difficult things because we like to. Um, and while the narrator is saying these things, there's videos of extreme sports enthusiasts jumping off of cliffs into like icy waters, sort of ridiculous stuff like that. Is that it? Is that what Moses was about? Was he just, Moses was an extremist. He was a thrill seeker. He was a masochist. He just wanted to endure pain and suffering just because it was fun. I don't think so. It was, wet. it was much more than that. I believe it was this horizon of hope. It was that vision of blessedness and glory, dwelling with God and in God's place that drove him. Even if he didn't get to taste that promised land himself, just the, the thought of dwelling in God's place with God's people, even for others, not just himself, but to think, even if I can't make it, my brothers and sisters make it. That joy drove him. Of course, Moses understood that the land was not the ultimate promised place of God's dwelling with his people. He understood that it was a foretaste. And when he died, when Moses died and he was buried, it says, and we don't even know where the tomb was, they said, uh, and there's a lot of debate. Maybe it was God who, who, when he died, buried him. I don't know. But when he died, Moses was translated to glory. He tasted the promised land in all its fruition. Not just the little pieces of taste that the people get from living in Palestine in the, that place, but the true glory of being with God in heaven. Friends, where is your hope? What compels you? What drives you forward? I, I contend that if we do not set before ourselves a grand vision, if, if we don't get up on a high place and look out over the land and gain perspective, the joy and blessing and happiness in this life will be fleeting. You already know that. You've experienced life, right? You've gone through life. You've, you've, you've enjoyed the taste of something fun and exciting and have it dissipate quickly like, like a vapor. It's what, that's what Solomon calls it, a vapor. It says all is vanity. Everything is vanity. Vanity of vanities. Friends, we have to seek something that doesn't end, 
that is secure, that is lasting. Some of you in that pursuit, you'll either say, well, I got I to get, get that feeling of happiness and joy in something uh, again and again and again, or maybe more and more and more. That's why I think extreme sports people, they go after it again and again, or they go after the next great challenge to the point where there's nothing left. But there's others of us that are different. We're not so bold. We just grow old and grumpy. But when we fix our eyes on that eternal horizon of hope, the glory of God and all that we have in him, then we can travel this life and all its pains and trials and temporary pleasures with what Moses had. Did you see what he had? He said, I love the the language here. It says, uh, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Pure. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old. Old man, by all accounts. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. He had that twinkle in his eye to the day he died as he looked forward to glory. Wouldn't it be that we all had the vigor of Moses? But here's where I want to conclude. I'm going to end here. Moses stands before us as a giant, right? That's how the text paints him. And there's a reason. Well, there was no prophet who would arise like Moses for millennia to come. There was one like Moses, but only greater who would come, wasn't there? Except for Christ. Like Moses, he knew God and enjoyed him face to face but far more intimately than Moses ever would know God. He not only saw him face to face, but he was one with the Father. He and the Father were one, or are one. Like Moses, he would perform many signs and wonders, and he also would redeem God's people. But as Moses was empowered by God to act and to deliver in a physical sense, this greater prophet acted in his own power, and as Moses himself needed redeeming, This greater prophet was without sin. And as Moses redeemed the people from slavery in Egypt, this greater prophet would redeem the people from sin and from death. In fact, this greater Moses would break the power of death himself. The tomb could not hold Christ, even as Moses' tomb was lost to history. And as Moses would die outside the physical land, this greater Moses would endure the full wrath and curse of God. He would endure hell itself. He would be abandoned. Friends, Moses was a great man, a prophet of God, a giant used by God. But Jesus is the prophet par excellence. This Jesus is the one who gives us the vision of glory, gives us eyes to see the hope that we have. He's the one who enables us to receive all the blessings of heaven. And he's the one who will lead us home. 
who takes us in his strong arms, who delivers us from sin and death, who gives up glory and endures hell so that we might enjoy heaven, the dwelling place of God. Friends, the horizon of hope stands before us. Jesus, the great Redeemer, the greater prophet, our Lord and Savior. All praise be to him as we fix our eyes on him and as we run this race of this life with all its struggles and pains, we endure with joy and hope in the glory of Christ.